Well, um, greetings from City Presbyterian Church in Midtown. Uh, we are so thankful. We love King's Cross. We're grateful for what is going on here in North Oklahoma City. Um, and I'm honored to be here. Casey called me on Wednesday and said, I need a good sermon this time. Um, so here you go. We'll fix Casey's disasters over the years. Uh, I am grateful to be here. Um, there's a lot of familiar faces, lots of people we love um, from City Prez, and so we're thankful for my mic turning off. Am I still on? Chris? Chris. Chris Howe. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Um, okay. Is that all the introduction stuff? Oh, yeah, very good. All right. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What is it you want? And how will you go about getting it? What are you building, and why are you building it? That's where we're headed. Consider the things you're a part of. What role do you play in those entities? It could be a business, a family, a church, a nonprofit, what, whatever you want. Uh, you might be at an entry level position. You might be the child. You might be middle management. You might be a parent, which, let's just face it, is just middle management. Half the pay, double the work. You might be an elder ish soon, maybe. Elders? You guys are supposed to be getting elders soon? Yeah, we'll see about that. Um. You might be the, did you know all this? I found these. C-A-O, C-D-O, C-E-O, C-F-O, C-I-O, C-M-O, C-O-O, C-S-O, C-T-O. You corporate people are weird. <laughs> Top to bottom. Entry level to one of those C's. I don't know, whatever. It doesn't really matter where your role is in that. The question is, how do you fit and what is it that you're a part of? Whatever that role is, what is being built around you and to what end is it being built? We're all builders. This text suggests, I would like to offer you, um, is what we want to build, really what we want to build is a name. And that in turn turns on a return to Eden. To that place where we had access to afternoon walks with God himself. To that place of glory and joy and peace. In short, all of that is what we want is to ascend. We want ascension. We want to return. But here's the problem. That desire to return, that desire for a name, that desire to be known is twisted by the fall. Sin turns us all into Uncle Rico's. Those desires, which should be placed on God himself, are turned inward. And we want to return on our own terms. We desire that sanitized, sepia-toned, nostalgic, golden age that never really was what you think it was. And we want these things, but we don't want to submit to Christ and his word and his power. We're all the consummate toddler. I do it myself. So here's where we're at this morning. Babel falsely promises the, 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 the fulfillment of that desire. Babel is a false promise to fulfill that desire. Pentecost is the true fulfillment of that desire. Babel is the false. 
Pentecost is the truth. We'll take those in their turn. How do we get to Babel? All right, so Babel is the story that connects Noah's descendants to Abram's family. Uh, Casey told me you're going through Genesis. He said I wouldn't, couldn't preach the next one because Casey's like that. So I'm going the other direction. I'm going pre-Abram. Here's how we do this. So after the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, a little Bible trivia for you, Noah's kids, they come down off of Mount Ararat. And at some point, the descendants of Shem and Japheth intertwine with the descendants of Ham. This is a problem. Following Ham's fall, and just for the record, by the way, it is not Noah that falls on the mountain. His heart was gladdened. He was not drunk. Noah is not the bad guy in that story. Ham is the bad guy when he exposes and dishonors his father. So it's Ham's problem, not Noah's. On that post-flood mountain, Ham's descendants are cursed by Noah. Canaan is cursed. And that cursing should have meant a separation of the peoples. But no, 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 no. In a replay of the intermarrying of the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6... We have the seed of the serpent now being reunited to the seed of the woman. And just like it broke bad in Genesis 6, it's about to break bad here too. So they're traveling east, which, by the way, is another nod to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they were kicked out to the east. When Cain killed his brother, God banished him to the east. East is God's call away from himself. And this is the direction the people are going, away from God himself. This mixed company of people were joined together in one language, and they formed a plan. They will build a city with a tower in its midst. They'll build a city to protect themselves, and they'll build a tower to reach into the heavens. The tower would be the religious center of that city. It's a new temple. In fact, this whole thing is just a new Eden. This tower was a, an attempt to reascend, to get back to that place we think we belong, but by disregarding God's commands and his purposes for humans. They even state this. They tell you why they're staying together. Why do they do this? To make a name for themselves. That's the whole point of this. A lot of people see the problem with Babel as trying to build your way back into heaven. That's eh, fine as far as it goes. But there's something deeper going on here, I suggest. And the problem is that they were trying to do that for a much deeper and more sinister motive. And that was, again, to make a name for themselves and protect themselves from being spread out. Those are your problems, too. Names, first. First, names, names. Names are big, big deals in Scripture. In fact, so big that it became one of the commandments. For those of you who keep these things straight, the third commandment says... You shall not take Yahweh's name in vain. There's a name commandment. Names matter. God gave his name. Um, The temple is described as a house for God's name. Names matter. This starts with God himself at the very beginning of the creation. Every day of creation, God names things. Light, darkness, waters above, water below, expanse. And the height of this creative naming is when God names Adam. His image bearer. He then turns the naming responsibilities over to that Adam, to that man. So Adam names animals. He names woman after she was taken out of his sight. Adam names Eve after she gives birth following the expulsion from the garden. Together, Adam and Eve name all their children. The power to name is given to God's image bearers. 
Naming's sort of a big deal. Biblically, to name something is to identify it according to its essence. It's to grant it an identity. Names aren't mere tags to differentiate this thing from that thing. And they're not come from cool uh, baby name books. If you did baby name books, whatever. Knock yourself out. Um, but once you find out, like we named our kid, our first kid, Aiden, because we really like the name. We have a story, blah, blah, blah. It was the most coolest name of that year. I don't know what happened, but it really bothers me. Names told you something about the names. Noah's name means rest. Moses' name means taken out of the water. Jacob's name means heel grabber. That's one of them. Esau was red and hairy. When the Hebrew youths are taken to Babylon, they're immediately changed to their names. And you all only know them by their Babylonian names. That's weird. Because, here's the point, when Nebuchadnezzar changes their names to the Babylonian names, he's placing the, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonian gods on God's people, calling them to a different identity and a different purpose. Naming comes from the outside. It's an identity conferred on you. Naming brings expectations, purposes, goals, etc. All right, so names, good. Names, yeah. To name yourself then is to define yourself by reference to nothing other than your own self-understanding. It's an attempt at autonomy. To cast off all authority and external sources of meaning and identity. It's an attempt to transcend God-gifted limits. This is not good. Here's Alan Noble. Y'all, if you haven't read this book, you should read this book. Um, You Are Not Your Own. It's the most important book I've read so far this year. You should read this book. Buy it today. Right, right now. Get on your phones. You're already on your phones. I can see you. Go ahead and go to Amazon and get it done. Here's Here's how Alan describes this. The ills of our culture are grounded in a particular understanding of what it means to be human. We are each our own. We belong to ourselves. From the early political liberalism of the 17th century with its language of individual liberties and rights, over time, Westerners began to think of themselves as naturally sovereign. The sovereign man is one who is like himself, who is only like himself. The one whom Nietzsche imagined has now become the norm. From this idea flows the belief in the virtue of freedom as limitlessness. To be your own and belong to yourself means that the most fundamental truth about existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. I am responsible for living a life of purpose, for defining my identity, of interpreting meaningful events, of choosing my own values and electing to what I belong. That is true of every level of your culture. We are truly living in a battle moment. We have a cultural identity crisis. There are cultural, personal, national, ecclesial identities, confusions all over the place. We have sexual and gender self-naming. We have nationalistic self-naming. We have political party self-naming. We have career self-naming. We have athletic prowess self-naming. We have GPA self-naming. We have all those COO, whatever, self-naming. There are any number of idolatrous ways to name yourself. Alan goes on to say, uh, that's a burden you don't want to bear. 
But the freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I'm liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. This burden manifests itself as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression, and it's exhausting. So here's the question, King's Cross. How do you identify? What is your name? By what names do you call yourself? What's the first in the list of things you say about yourself? Second, refusing to spread out. Originally, God called his image bearers to be fruitful, multiply, filled, and subdue. Genesis 1.26. He intended Adam and Woman to fill the earth with progeny. Babel is a denial of the cultural mandate in the Imago Dei. We don't want to be scattered. We don't want to spread out. To be spread out is to be weak. And we desperately don't like being weak. We will do whatever we can to find our tribe and stick together. Middle schoolers, you know what I'm talking about. And God says when we stick together, there's nothing we can't accomplish. This seems, God takes this possibility very seriously. There's nothing they can't accomplish. And I don't think God's speaking hyperbole. The problem is, is that when you group together, sin turns groups into mobs. Too often what motivates groups is a misplaced sense of justice or mercy or love. And in the end, because it's not rooted in a strong sense of God's gospel and the image of God, they'll turn what's good into a perverse and corrupted version of truth, beauty, and goodness. And they'll, become, they'll come to dominate rather than liberate. They'll become tolerantly intolerant, self-righteous, and ungracious. This is what we're like in big groups. So... Who do you spend your time with? What groups do you spend your time with? What motivates these groups? What's at the bottom of what they're about and therefore what you're about? What's King's Cross relationship to others? Are you tight-knit, self-involved? Do you play well with others? Do you seek out otherness? At the middle of their passage, at the middle of Genesis 11, this passage, is it's a chiasm. If you want to talk about that later, you can ask Casey. Right in the middle is God comes down. That's the irony of this passage. They're going to build their tower up to heaven. They still can't get high enough. God has, still has to come down to meet them. God comes down to see, and to see in Scripture is to judge. And God judges their efforts and disperses them, confusing their languages, forcing them to spread out. This is God's mercy. The babylization of a culture is God's mercy, it turns out. If your center is not what it needs to be, it is God's grace to scatter. God keeps them from destroying themselves in their efforts to become like God. To make this false return. This is the situation from Genesis 1, 11 to Acts chapter 1. And then God makes all things new. Here we arrive at Pentecost. Pentecost is God's answer to the problem of Babel. Here's Luke from Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
And it divided tongues of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who hear speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own native language? We are intended by Luke to connect ourselves back to Babel. Just as Genesis 10 records the nations, Luke records the nations. Just as God comes down to judge, the Holy Spirit comes down, who is poured out. And just as God makes change to language, he makes another change to language. The the twist, the gospel twist. What God confused at Babel, he clears at Pentecost. What God disperses at Babel, he brings together at Pentecost. And what he tears down at Babel, he rebuilds in Pentecost. Pentecost is the empowering of the church for mission. Jesus calls his people in Matthew 28 to renewed image bearing. Again, we were called as humans to be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue. This call is renewed in the resurrected Christ, the first truly human human. He calls his people to disciple the nations, to spread out, teaching and baptizing. He calls his people on this mission that is only possible by the power of that same spirit. You who are baptized renewed are renewed in that image. You are, beget, you are given that new humanity. That is the place the spirit is poured out. Yes, poured, not dumped. Poured, friends. The place of the spirit. You are baptized into the name of the triune God. In your baptism, you take on his name, not your own. You are given a true name, a name that comes from God himself. And this naming relativizes all your other names. All those other names, those things you think identify you are now secondary. Not unimportant, not unimportant, secondary to the name given you by Christ at your baptism. This is all just Genesis or Galatians 3. Christ's name is the name above all names, and it now belongs to you. And you're free from the burden to name yourself. That's good news, y'all. Belonging to Christ is above all loyalties and other attempts to unify ourselves. You belong to the church, the body of Christ, and to others who bear his name. And you're to take that name to all the nations. The gospel does not belong to only one nation, one culture, one kind of people. The gospel goes to all people. So here's the question. Will you take Christ's name alone to the nations? Will King's Cross bear his name first and foremost in everything you say and do and believe and think? Is his name foremost at King's Cross? The Holy Spirit gives the body of Christ a new language. The gospel is proclaimed and heard in a language that transcends our own human languages. That is the only means of true unity. And our world is in desperate need of true unity. The world seeks any number of ways to find that unity, to find that ascension and return. But those ways of unity unity only highlight disunity. There's a kind of unity that's pushed 
by those who don't think Trinitarianly about the relationship between difference and sameness. We have a culture that makes difference more important than commonness. And this is because otherness tends to scare us. We tend to want to squash the other, to mold the other into something more like ourselves, to rid ourselves of others of difference. The other too often stands in the way of our autonomy. We must crush whatever gets in the way of my desires and hopes and dreams. Ironically, out there, that version of unity is derailed by our obsession with difference. And y'all, that's not untrue in the church. We have not been immune to that. Only the gospel can overcome our false sense of unity. Only the gospel tells us the true story of the world and provides a language needed to unify us. This unity that the Spirit brings is a unity that doesn't swallow diversity. Pentecost is not a return to pre-Babel uniformity, but a renewal of the true relationship between me and the other. We cannot be a place of homogeneity. The church must be full of others united in that one spirit. Will you, King's Cross, allow the other to become part of you? Will you become a place of true unity and diversity? Will you do the hard work of imaging the triune God who is both one and many? Two Thursdays ago was the Feast of the Ascension. Today is the Feast of Pentecost or Whitsunday. Throw that around at dinner sometime. The two go together, both necessary for the completion of redemption. On the day of Ascension, Jesus ascends to the throne to reign and rule all things. He departs, as he tells us in St. John's Gospel, in order to send his spirit to form the body, the church. And thus, as he did at the end of the first creation, he rests. His ascension is his resting at the end of the work of recreating all things. And he can do this because he has a renewed image bearer to take on that work. At the first creation, he rested because he gave Adam and Eve the image and the call. And now you who bear his renewed image have that same call. You knew Adam and Eve's united in one body with the king of all cities and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the presence of all the new temple. Fulfill the mission to bring God's story to the nations, to bring those scattered tribes, tongues and nations into that one body built by one spirit, redeemed by one Christ, loved by one father. And that same ascended Christ now joins you at this table. He offers you a seat with him in that true city wherein he is the true king. And that same spirit poured out in A.D. 30 lifts you up into the heavenlies to feast with and feast upon the resurrected king of all things. Even Jesus Christ, whose name is above all names. That is your true ascension here at this table is what you want. Here alone is that true return. Right here. The same Spirit who gave you the name of the triune God at your baptism ever unites you more and more to those who also bear His name. This is the table of unity. It's not found anywhere else, friends. Right here. In this bread and in this cup, you participate together In Christ's body and blood. You are brought more and more into union with each other. Christ, the broken one, in his resurrection, took down the walls of hostility 
that we have built. And here is the place that we are brought back together. Here, alone, is that return. So come, eat, drink, be merry. Find your true reunification. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.